One of the hardest things, it seems, for mankind to do is to let God be God. To accept the fact that he is the true sovereign. That he can do as he pleases. Now that phrase, as he pleases, can be troublesome to some if we think about things on a human level. If we're speaking about mankind, but God, the perfectly holy one, his pleasure is pure and it's right. God doesn't operate on a whim. He doesn't make up things as he goes along. All was set before the foundation of the world. He doesn't begin the day by thinking, well, who will I be nice to today? Or let me just be there for the deserving ones. The Apostle Paul anticipated an objection in regard to God's righteousness in the fact of his choosing some and not others. And so in Romans 9 and verse 14, he says, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. And even a statement like that so often inflames people. Why doesn't he give compassion to everybody? If God gives compassion, it's out of grace. He's giving something that people don't deserve. It isn't it's strange that when it comes to compassion or mercy, people say everybody deserves it. No, they don't. What is it that everybody deserves? Condemnation and eternal torment. Upon a statement like this from God that people begin to grumble, to question. The strange thing I've found over the years is the ones who seem to grumble the most are the ones God has shown mercy to. In all my lifetime, I've never read of a Philistine saying God was unfair to us. Even at the time they were struck with hemorrhoids. The Philistines did not question the righteousness of God. And they weren't the brightest bulbs on the face of the earth either. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus gives a parable of the workers in the vineyard. as we come to verse 1, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers, laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, that was the normal day's wage, he sent them into his vineyard. He went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went 
And again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard and notice whatever is right, you will receive. Whatever is right, you will receive. Now, of course, the vineyard owner is is God. And so when the evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers, give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a a denarius. But the first came, when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more. And they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and heat of the day. You made them equal with us. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours. Go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? right and proper mercy and grace are God's to give as well as justice and it doesn't go against the nature of God to punish the wicked or to show mercy to certain sinners now some of this has an echo of what we talked about a few weeks ago but here once again Is there injustice? Is there unrighteousness with God? What if we turn to Job chapter 12? Job chapter 12, verse 6, Job is answering and speaking. He says this, the tents of robbers prosper, and those who provoke God are secure. And what God provides by his hand. The tents of robbers prosper, and those who provoke God are secure. What God provides by his hand. Then if we turn to chapter 21, chapter 21 and verse 7, he speaks again, why do the wicked live and become old? Yes, become mighty in power. So Job again, why do the wicked 
live and become old. Yes, become mighty in power. You've seen the the protests, unfortunately, happening after some act of violence. And you hear the chants, what do we want? Justice. When do we want it? Now. Now. We want it now. The question that has to be asked behind a thought like that, are you looking for justice or are you looking for vengeance? There's a big difference between the two. It has almost seems that in the midst of his suffering, Job is saying, I'm suffering these people who are wicked, are getting by and having an easy life. If we turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 15. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 15. It's a worldly observation that he gives. He goes back and forth, and generally you can tell in Ecclesiastes when he's giving a, a worldly kind of, of uh, uh, viewpoint because he used the term under the sun. And it comes to this in chapter 7, verse 15. He says, I've seen everything in my days of vanity which again would be days of emptiness, worldliness. There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. In essence, it almost sounds like he's saying it doesn't pay to be good. And in chapter 9 and verse 2, <clears throat> he says, All things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean and unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath as he who fears an oath. And again, that was verse 3. You say, you see, he's speaking under the sun. Under the sun. But if we just pop back to chapter 8, now here's a different viewpoint being given. In verse 11, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set to do, uh, in them to do evil. And though a sinner does evil a hundred times, and his days are prolonged, Yet I surely know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear God. See, that's looking beyond the earthly to what is to come. Now we can go to Jeremiah chapter 12, and we see that Jeremiah approaches God with somewhat of the same kind of question but with a different kind of attitude. 
And so in Jeremiah chapter 1, he makes sure, not only in his own mind, who he is speaking to at this point. He says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. Yet let me talk with you about your judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? You have planted them. Yes, they have taken root. They grow. Yes, they bear fruit. You are near in their mouth, but far from their mind. But you, O Lord, know me. You have seen me, and you have tested my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the herbs of the field wither? The beasts and birds are consumed for the wickedness of those who dwell there because they said he will not see our final end. Our final end. And the Lord answers Job. If you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how will you contend with the horses? And if in the land of peace in which you trusted they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? For even your brothers, the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. Yes, they have called a multitude after you, but do not believe them, even though they speak smooth words to you. I have forsaken my house. I have left my heritage. I have given the dearly beloved of my soul unto the hand of her enemies. See, the, the way he approaches it is not really saying, God, things are wrong. I know you're righteous, but I'm confused. And so God gives an explanation to him. And basically in that it's explanation he's saying to him you don't know the full story you don't know everything that's going on you don't know what's behind all this now Job as we have seen had questions but his questions were given as accusations And as Elihu heard him speak, he got angry. And in chapter 32 of Job, in verse 2, in the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, and his family of Ram, was aroused against Job. His wrath was aroused because he justified himself rather than God. He justified himself rather than God. Now if we turn just a couple of pages to chapter 34. Verse 5. Elihu is recounting some of the things that Job has said. For, for Verse 5 for Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my justice. Should I lie concerning my right? My wound is incurable though I am without transgression. What man is like Job who drinks scorn like water? 
Verse 9, for he said, it profits a man nothing that he should delight in God. And then in chapter 35, verse 2, as Elihu continues, <clears throat> do you think this is right? Do you say my righteousness is more than God's? For you say, what advantage will it be to you? What profit shall I have more than if I had sinned? Now with that in mind, we come to where we are in chapter 40 today. God's response to Job begins in chapter 38, but now we need to look at something. In verse 6 of chapter 40, then God answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Have you an arm like God, or can you thunder with a voice like his? Then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor, and array yourself with glory and beauty. As I said, the response to Job begins in chapter 38. But we need to look at something in the life of Job. Uh, and this isn't the pile on Job. He went through a very, very, very difficult time. There's no question about that. But what happens here is very instructive to us as to how we deal with adversity. Job never said in his days of prosperity, why hast thou blessed me, O Lord? Why is it that thou art giving to me but not to them? Why do I have all this and this over here has none? Never question God's righteousness or justice in his days of prosperity. Prosperity's taken away. Job looks over and he sees wicked prospering. God, what's wrong? How can this be justice? How can this be right? But yet it's the same God. And, and Job, in the beginning, started out right. He said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But he didn't stay on that plane. As soon as troubles continued, he started to descend. In chapter 40, verse 3, Job answered the Lord and said, well, first the question that, that God gives in the beginning, more of the Lord answered Job and said, shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. He is brought to silence. Note what has taken place. 
In Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, there's something very, very good for us to see in connection with all this. Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Now when we come back to Job chapter 40, God has challenged Job Job responds in verses 3 through 5. Behold, I'm vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Job is now contrite and humble. And because of that, God will now continue to speak to him. If Job had continued with a, a haughty questioning of, of God's righteousness, there would be silence. But we note his humility, his humble and contrite response brings, Behold, I am vile. Now, again, if Job had answered, What was done to me was not right. I deserve better. And that's what I've been trying to tell you. That would have been answered with silence. But Job's humility brings another time of teaching from God. In verse 7, Job is told to prepare himself. Prepare himself like a man, not like a woman. Prepare yourself like a man. Because the common understanding was, in the literally it says, gird your loins like a man, get ready for battle. Because men were the ones who fought. It would have been obscene for them to look at what happens in so many countries like ours. Prepare yourself. Gird your loins like a man because we're going to reverse things, God says. Verse 7, I will question you. You shall answer me. You have been questioning me, but that's not how it's supposed to be. I question you, and you shall answer me. And this is important. Job has grown now, but now there's need for greater growth, and God will teach him. He'll teach him more because he dwells with the humble. Matthew Henry writes, those who duly receive what they have heard from God and profit by it shall hear more from them. This is exactly what's going on here. As interesting as we read on, the Lord will use two of the world's largest creatures, the behemoth, the biggest land animal we see referred to in chapter 40, verses 15 through 26. And then as we come to chapter 41, Leviathan, the biggest sea creature. 
creatures Job and anyone else would be helpless to control. And yet God says they're like playthings to me. They're like little pets. The purpose being to help Job put things in perspective and remind him of the creature-creator distinction. We not speak to God like he was some kind of public official or someone who is on equal status with us. There's a, a rush of egalitarian mindset that's sweeping our nation where people feel like they can talk to anybody they want to any way they want to. No respecter of title or place. Well, we're all equal. Well, perhaps. We can, we can pour out our hearts before God without questioning his character. I heard a well-known radio preacher one time say, go on and question God. Yell if you need to. He can take it. He's God. Now, while I can understand to some degree what he's saying, but I would have to go the opposite way because he is God. Yes, he can take it, sure. But at the same time, he should not have to because he is God. His ways are perfect. If we go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Solomon has some very wise words that are often very much forgotten. Chapter 5 and verse 1. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Verse 2, Solomon is saying, remember the creature-creator distinction. If we believe all men are created equal, then ever, if we look at that statement, all men are created equal. You know the thing. We believe all men are created equal. Before we get to equal, you know where we have to stop? All men are what? Created. Created. That's the first stop that we have to look at. But too many pop right on and go right on to the end of the sentence. Equal. We're created. We're creatures. That's often forgotten. Again, I'm not saying that we can't ask God questions. 
We should. We're invited to. We're, we're told to. If you, don't, if you lack understanding, ask God. And in asking him, it's admitting that we don't know, that we lack knowledge. If any of you lack wisdom, so when you go to ask God, what are you doing? I lack wisdom, God. You are the source, so I've come to you. It's admitting our lack of wisdom or knowledge. But when we question him, we we reverse a proper order. So again, back in chapter 40 and verse 7, now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. That's how things are to be. But we also do something else. Notice what God says. God says to him here in verse 8. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me so that you will be justified? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Remember back in chapter 32, in verse 2, was the very thing. Elihu went on and got angry because Job, uh, he justified himself rather than God. The one who says God was wrong or he was unfair has set God's judgment aside to exalt his own. Because the moment we say and we hint at anything like that, God is unfair. What have we done? We've judged him. And we put our judgment up here and the righteousness of God down here. We have exalted ourselves at his expense. Look, when we come before God, it's not a clash of equals. Earlier, we were reading from Psalm 51, verse 4, David said, Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Just when you speak, blameless when you judge. If we went to Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 33. Nehemiah says, however, as he addresses the Lord, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done Wickedly. One other place in Daniel chapter 9, in verse 7. Daniel chapter Daniel chapter 9, verse 7. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us 
shame of face as it is this day. The men of Judah, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in all countries to which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. I have no doubt that Job was confused. I have no doubt that he, at times he look at all the good things that I've done in my life, and yet I am hit with this, these situations. But no matter how right we may perceive ourselves to be, if it calls God's judgment into question, and our judgment is wrong. The moment we call God's judgment into question, our judgment is wrong. We've made the wrong assessment. It's a hard thing to take, isn't it? It's a hard thing to put on and to wear that we might be wrong and God might be right. That maybe we're not quite as advanced as we might think we are, or able. It's one of the great things about the simplicity of God. There's nothing in him to get riled. But there's plenty of us. How many times have, have uh, we heard the expression, you're so angry my blood began to boil. And various other things that go along with people who have passions and parts, which God does not. But it also points us finally to the fact, because our judgments, even if we have read the Bible 55 times back and forth, it's not a guarantee that our judgments are going to be 100% accurate every single time. another reason why we need a savior because we are so quick as Calvin said the, the mind of man is an idol factory it's constantly producing idols and generally the one that gets put on the, the highest pedestal is ourselves our own judgment our own understanding of things That's why we need a Savior, because in our minds we would say, I can do that which is good enough to be accepted by God. And that, my friends, is the worst judgment we could ever have, not only about God, but ourselves. Let's stand together for prayer.